Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. Here with me today is Matt Tenney. Matt wrote the book, The Mindfulness Edge, How to Rewire Your Brain for Leadership and Personal Excellence Without Adding to Your Schedule. Basically, we always want to do things that give us a productive advantage that doesn't actually add to our schedule. So this is an interesting podcast to listen to. Uh, Matt has a very interesting background, which we're going to hear about, uh, that he talks about in the book, but he'll share with us today in the podcast of what sort of brought him into this work. And uh, and the book was really an excellent book that I really fully enjoyed. So, uh, Matt, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. So what uh, led you to write this book, and what's the big idea uh, in the book? It was, it was actually the... Uh, response that I've been getting from audiences. So I do a lot of uh, keynote speak- speeches at conferences and training. And oftentimes I, I, I focus on servant leadership as kind of the, the, the big idea, but I offer mindfulness as a very effective way to be able to serve team members at a higher level um, through our own personal development. And it was interestingly, it seemed like almost every single talk the, most of the questions I got were on mindfulness and that people wanted to know more about it and how to do it. And it, so I, I wasn't planning actually on writing this book for a couple more years, but um, it, that's just kind of how it happened. I realized there's a, a very powerful thirst for it. And so the big idea of the book is that um, I, I think you kind of alluded to it just in the title, which is what we're hoping for with the title of the book is that um, there, he, here's a practice that with, without adding or necessarily adding anything to your schedule, you don't have to add anything to your schedule. Um, you can just kind of change your, your default mode of operating through much of your daily activities. And by doing that, you can actually rewire your brain to function uh, in ways that are much more conducive to effective leadership. Um, and so that's, that's the big idea. So mindfulness has become very popular over the last decade or so. It's an increasing in popularity, at least. What? Uh, why don't you just give us a basic explanation of it so that people who maybe haven't become familiar with it understand the, the sort of basics of what we're talking about when we say mindfulness? Sure. Yeah. In fact, I think the increasing popularity has done some work to make it less clear what mindfulness is. So this may be a good place to start. You know, I often hear people when they think of mindfulness, they think of, uh, you know, some type of focus work or, you know, uh, going to some quiet place and sitting still. And of course, taking time to sit still can, can be a very valuable practice. And we talk about it at length in the book. Um, however, really what mindfulness is, is not some technique um, it's nothing magical. It, you know, it's something that we actually do many times every day, anyhow. Um, it, anytime that we kind of wake up and we recognize our own thinking, we become aware of our own um, emotional state in the body, that, that's actually what mindfulness is. Um, the problem is that most of us don't do that intentionally and we're not able to sustain it for very long, especially in demanding situations. So to me, m- being mindful is making that shift. It's shifting away from being identified with our thinking which makes us very habitual in how we respond to life 
And it's moving towards, uh, moving away from that to where we're actually aware. We can see our thinking objectively and that frees us up to respond to situations based on our values and with a certain amount of agility that people who can't do that aren't going to have. And the practice is learning to do that, which again, we're, people already do this. So it's not like this is something new that you've never done before. But the practice is learning to do it intentionally, making that a habit uh, throughout your day and learning to try to sustain it for longer periods of time. And that's where we start to see changes in the brain and changes in behavior. So I could imagine that um, people might be, there's an idea that people might be too mindful, right? That, that sometimes you want to veg out, that, you know, sometimes I want to read a book while I'm eating as opposed to focus on my eating. Is that a mistake? Is there, is there a, a level at which being too aware of what we're doing at every moment might even be self-involved or might even be, um, you know, in some ways keeping us working hard when what we really want to do is sort of relax and let go? Yeah, I think if if we practice incorrectly, I think that can certainly be the case. You know, I think um, if if we're making mindfulness a chore, you know, just one more thing that we have to do, uh, then we're probably not going to get very far. You know, in fact, if we're practicing correctly, the practice should actually be should feel very much like relaxing and letting go, um, because that's essentially what we're doing. We're not working so hard to be in there talking to ourselves and trying to fix every issue that's going spinning around in our brains. It's, it's, not, it's not so much of an adding to or, or a doing as it is um, a letting go. And that letting go shifts us to this awareness of what's happening internally, both with our thoughts and emotions. Um, and I don't think, you know, if we practice correctly, I don't think that there's really, I don't think there's really a limit. I mean, I don't think you can do it too much. It's, it's something that if, if, again, if done correctly, there are no negative side effects to this. Um, if, if there's some slight misunderstanding about the practice and we practice incorrectly, there certainly can be. Um, and especially if we've had uh, like a trauma in our past or something like that, there, there can be some pretty serious things to work through. Uh, but now I would say that there's what, what we're not saying here and what I definitely don't say in the book is that we should be, pract- we should be doing this 24-7. I mean, we should definitely be, have intentional periods of time where we plan and analyze and think. Um, and I think there should also be time where we intentionally let our minds wander. There's research suggesting that we're, we're much more likely to have creative thought and creative connection between ideas when we're not making any effort to, to pay attention and just letting the mind wander. Um, the, the idea here is to be much more intentional about when we do those things. So... I think for most of us, our default is our mind is just constantly going. We're talking to ourselves. We're judging. We're analyzing. We're critiquing. Um, and we don't really have an ability to be free from that. And the training is to say, well, now we have the choice. Um, if I want to get in there and wrestle around with thinking or if I want to just let my mind wander to induce creativity, I can do that. But as a default, I have the ability to see myself objectively, have the subjective self-awareness that allows me to respond in demanding situations with much greater clarity, with much greater intentionality, um, and much more in line with values. I wonder if you could give us an, uh, an experience. We didn't talk about this before the show, but I wonder if you can give us an experience of mindfulness now, like really, you know, 30 seconds, a minute, whatever it is, that where you guide us to be mindful in a way that, because you make this distinction between 
correct, practicing correctly and practicing incorrectly. And I'm wondering if you could guide us to practice in a way that would fit that category of correctly. Sure. And there, I guess the practicing incorrectly may be a little bit of a misnomer. It's just that the, there's kind of a sweet spot where the practice becomes very easy and highly effective. And there's lots of techniques that are kind of dance around that sweet spot. But and, and the idea is to facilitate us getting to that sweet spot. But the actual sweet spot is so simple and so easy that we overlook it and we want to do something else. We want to go, you know, build focus or concentration or something like that. Um, so really whether like I'm standing right now, I like to work at a standing desk. Um, so whether you're standing or sitting, we can kind of just do the same thing. And, um, really the practice is just to, it can be very easily initiated by having what we call a beginner's mind. So that's just having this open, curious awareness about what is actually happening right now. And so you could just start with a question, just kind of ask yourself internally, what is it like to stand right now? Or what is it like to sit? And just open your senses up and see what you notice. You're not looking for anything in particular. Just open. So you might notice what the feet feel like on the floor or what your legs feel like pressed against the seat. Um, you might notice sounds in the room or in an adjacent room. Uh, you might even notice the fact that you're breathing. And so if you're, for instance, if your eyes are open and you're looking outward, you might have this sense that as you're looking outward, it's almost as though you're looking back at yourself, just kind of observing yourself standing or sitting aware of what it feels like to either stand or sit, which is with this general awareness. And what I usually like to recommend if we're static, if we're not moving, is to just try to maintain that curious, open awareness for the duration of one in-breath, and then again, try to do it again for one out-breath. So you might, be, you might even use mental noting to help. So as you breathe in, you might just note in what's happening now, out, and now. And so you can just kind of keep that attitude, that curious attitude of as you breathe in, what's this moment like? Out, what's happening now? So nothing super magical there, right? Nothing, it's not mind blowing. Again, this is a very ordinary experience, something we do all the time. Um, but what you might notice, is, especially if somebody has been really caught up in their thinking, is that all of a sudden you realize, oh, wow, I'm, I'm kind of aware of the thoughts going through my mind and they're not pulling me away from what else is happening right now. And the magic is in learning to sustain that. And that's why I like to use that timer um, of one in-breath and one out-breath instead of saying, okay, I want to try to sustain this for my entire walk to the train or I want to try to sustain this for an entire 10 minutes of sitting still while I commute uh, or two minutes while brushing my teeth. The idea is, you know, if we're just, if we're still to just use a very short timer, I just want to have that curious attitude for one in breath. And then as I breathe out, I want to try to do it again. And that's it. That's great. That's great. Thank you. Sure. Um, help me uh, connect this to leadership. So you talk a lot in the book and you, you, you know, we've talked about this briefly, the importance of mindfulness to leaders. So in what way is it important to leaders and, you know, may, maybe some advice to people who are leading organizations or leading people about, you know, how they can take advantage of mindfulness? Sure. Well, that's, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, topics to touch on here. It's a here. big question. Yes. But I think we'll, maybe we'll start with the general idea and then you, you can kind of pin me down and go more specific as to what you think would be most valuable for your, your listeners. I think in the broadest sense... The idea is that we're cultivating self-awareness. 
And I don't think there are very few people that I met that would argue that self-awareness is the most important skill we can develop as a leader. And the reason for that is that self-awareness is the foundation of good decision making. Um, it's the foundation of knowing our strengths and weaknesses. It's the foundation of uh, emotional intelligence, which if anyone's familiar with the research of Daniel Goleman and Richard Boyatzis suggests that, that you know, emotional intelligence counts for as much as 90% of what separates stellar leaders from average ones. Um, so I think, I think people are familiar with this idea. We hear about self-awareness a lot, but maybe we're not aware that there is a way to systematically train to change our brain in ways that allow us to be not only self-aware in situations where we might not normally be self-aware, which for most people is when we're under stress and we have the stress um, response is activated in the body. What tends to happen is we become much more habitual and not self-aware. So there also might be the case where People do have the ability to be more self-aware in a stressful situation, but our self-awareness isn't very refined. So we might be aware of very non-subtle aspects of our behavior and decision-making, but some of the more subtle aspects were not. So the idea here is that we can not only train to, to have this kind of objective self-awareness that we can execute on demand, we can have that awareness whenever we like, even if the situation is very demanding, um, which is just going to improve our, our effectiveness incredibly in a demanding situation because, again, it improves decision-making and emotional intelligence. But we can also really, really refine that self-awareness. I mean, there's there some research we talk about in the book of peeping, people being able to notice things um, like, for instance, physiological characteristics like the space between heartbeats that most people just can't do. Um, there's research that we didn't include in the book because I don't think it was ever published uh, but of people with many hours of training of mindfulness who are able to actually even self-report their clarity of perception in a way that correlates very strongly to EEG readings of their brain activity, which untrained people, not only did they not have a correlation there, but they actually had a negative correlation. So the idea is that we can take our self-awareness and refine it to very high levels. And this, of course, is the key to self-mastery, right? The the better that we understand ourselves, our habitual ways of acting and deciding, um, our habitual ways of reacting to people in situations, the better we're going to be able to respond in a way that's effective. And you said it changes the brain. It's not just something we're learning how to do, but we're literally changing the brain. Yes. I mean, I don't think that the scientific community is ready to call this knowledge yet, but there is a growing body of evidence Um I think there were over 1,500 studies last year uh, that were published in peer-reviewed or peer-reviewed studies uh, on mindfulness, and a good number of those were in the field of neuroscience. Uh, the co-author of the book, Tim Gard, is actually a neuroscientist who was trained at Harvard, uh, and he that this is what he's focusing his whole career on is this idea that. Um, there are several studies that show pretty clearly that we're changing the brain, not only how it functions. But even the physical structure of the brain, by simply using our minds um, when we're engaged in mindfulness training, and some of the challenges with the, with this research is that it's um, the brain is very difficult to measure and it's hard to control some of the variables. But they're getting researchers are getting better and better at this, and there are now some some fairly well controlled studies that are replicated. Um, so I think we're getting close to where the scientific community is going to say you know, we, we would call this knowledge that if you're engaging in mindfulness training, you are definitely changing both the function and physical structure of your brain. 
And the way that we're changing the brain is that we're increasing the brain's, uh, you correct me here, capacity, likelihood, uh, ease with which it focuses on the present moment and increases our self-awareness. Am I, am I stating this correctly? Those two, those two elements have been um, researched quite extensively, actually. I think there's, uh, after perhaps um, increasing our resilience to stressful situations, I think attention is probably the second most studied aspect of mindfulness because that's kind of what it is. It's attention training. Uh, but I, here's a general idea for you that I think can really hit at home is there's kind of uh, this this general idea of a neural network that's called the default mode network that many neuroscientists talk about. And this is how most people spend most of their time is these areas of the brain are engaged and it's, they're mostly midline areas of the brain um, and it's a very habitual self-referential self neural network. And when we make the shift to being mindful, you can actually see the brain activity shift away from this default mode network to a much more objective view of self. And so that's what, you know, is actually watching brains in action. And then there are also studies that show that over time, there are physical changes, whether it's, we're not quite sure. Um, and I don't think there's anyone that's exactly sure what's being changed, whether it's just increased amount of vasculature in the brain or new uh, dendrites on the, on the brain cells or even new neurons, all of those could be possible. But what we do know is that you can see that certain areas of the brain become thicker, which means that they're more robust and more likely to be able to carry out a behavior. And some of the areas that we know that that happens are, are highly associated with self-awareness and attention regulation um, and also self-regulation, this ability to regulate emotion. And I'm a meditator, and I think you are too. Help, you know, briefly distinguish for us the difference between meditating and mindfulness. So meditating actually takes me 20 minutes in the morning or 20 minutes <laughs> in the evening. And what you're saying is, uh, and I want to check with this, that you can get the same results by simply being mindful about what you're doing when you're doing it and that you can continue to do whatever it is that you do, but just shifting your mind's focus ends up getting the same results as meditating. Am I understanding that right or am I overselling it? Very close, very close. Um, I actually think it's just a matter of semantics. So it's, when you say meditating, the way that I would describe that is practicing mindfulness while sitting still. So to me, that's the only difference. If we're, um, I just don't use that word because oftentimes I've noticed that it conjures up weird images in people's minds. If they're not familiar with the topic, uh, you know, people tend to think of people, you know, sitting on a mountaintop in a cave or something like that. And I, I just don't mention the word meditate or meditation because I think um, if we're just talking about mindfulness, which is something most people are familiar with, then it's, it's a little bit easier for people to grasp as here's a practical tool that I don't have to add something weird to my life. Uh, but really all meditation is, the definition of it is becoming familiar with the mind. So when I say sitting still practicing mindfulness or what you call meditation, what that is, is taking time to become familiar with the mind. And there is tremendous benefit to that. So when I say that you don't have to add anything to your schedule, I'm not saying that you should not take time to sit still. And we address this in the book. Um, there are ways that we can add sitting still practice or what you would call meditation to our lives without adding anything to our schedule. We just change the way that we do things that we already do. For instance, 
if we take a, a 10 minute break at, in the morning or in the evening, I'm sorry, in the morning or afternoon at work, which I know a lot of us who are type A, you know, brag about how we don't take breaks. We definitely should be. There's plenty of research, which we bring up in the book, um, showing that we're actually much more productive over the long term if we, if we take breaks frequently. The brain needs to rest um, to be able to function at optimal levels. So the idea here is that assuming that you do take a break, instead of spending the whole time you know, texting or searching Facebook or reading a magazine or something like that, take five minutes of it to sit still while you practice mindfulness. Um, again, and if, you, if we commute on a train, uh, that's a very easy place to practice. One of my favorite places to practice is on a train or a subway. And the value of taking time to sit still um, is that during motion, yes, it's very likely that there are changes happening to the brain. Uh, but most of the research, I think, is focused on people who, are, who had periods of time sitting still every day. Um, and so the reason I think sitting still has such an effect is that you're not going to get the same level of clarity of your inner world when you're in motion at first. It, you can train to this point. Uh, I actually find that my practice is almost identical now, for instance, when I'm walking or when I'm uh, standing and waiting in a line as it is when I sit still. Uh, and I think anyone can do that. I'm not, there's nothing special about me. But at first, it's very helpful to take time to sit still because it allows us to have this much higher uh, resolution image or this much greater clarity of our inner world. Uh, and we, our learning curve is, is much sharper that way. It's yeah, what I find also is that it's actually much, I mean, this is why I sort of started out with the effort of it. It's much harder to do for me to really uh, keep my focus on what I'm doing in that moment. And that if I'm doing anything, it makes it even harder. So mm -hmm. sitting still is my best <laughs> shot at, at you know, succeeding a little bit, get, having that feeling of, okay, I can actually watch my mind. Because when I start going off and doing other things that... Um, it becomes harder for me to do that. I'd love to um, just hear or have the listeners hear just a little bit about your story because it's an interesting story of how you ended up discovering all of this. Uh, and we don't have a ton of time here, but but wanted you to be able to share that story, the sort of origin, the Matt Tenney origin story. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you the briefest um, version you know, possible uh, and then you can ask, ask any questions that you'd like follow up on. So as much as I'd love to tell you that I learned about this as the result of some great success, you know, running a fantastic company or something, I actually learned about it as a result of my greatest failure. Um, I was, I had, had served as an officer in the Marine Corps and about two years into my career did something very stupid and dishonest, attempted a shortcut to success by um, arranging a fraudulent delivery of uh, government funds. And that resulted in me spending five and a half years confined to a military prison. And about a year into it, started learning about mindfulness and the practice resonated with me so much that I really went at it a hundred percent. Ended up living and training exactly as monks live and train for the last three and a half years that I was confined and then went and lived and trained in a, in a quote unquote real monastery after leaving confinement. Um, and the, the two biggest takeaways are for me from that training was that I learned one that it's possible to be happy with nothing outside of ourselves, even just inside of a prison with no possessions. Um, in fact, the, there was a period about a year into my practice where I realized I was actually happier confined than I had ever been in my life. And the other aspect was that although I, I don't think I was ever a, a terrible person, 
uh, apparently terrible enough to do something stupid and, and become and get arrested. Um, what I noticed was that I was there was a shift to being much more concerned about what I can do to serve others versus my own short-term self-interest. And I've noticed that the more I've really focused on that, the more success I've had, um, both personally and professionally. And I found that mindfulness training has greatly facilitated that. And so that ended up, you know, this focus on service led me to co-found and lead a couple nonprofits. Um, and then eventually realized, wow, maybe I could help other leaders to kind of not only make this shift from being more focused on short-term self-interest or quarterly profits, more towards what we can do to most effectively serve team members and how that leads to better business outcomes. And here's how mindfulness can help you do that. You know, it's interesting because it's a story that says, how do you take adversity? And, you know, you've had one of the um, strongest experiences of adversity when all of your freedoms are taken away uh, for some period of time. And, you know, how do you take that and make something useful of it? And I think it's a lesson for many of us who periodically get into situations where we're, you know, overwhelmed or we have too much work or we're, you know, we have a big challenge ahead of us. And, and look, we ask for it in many ways. Uh, uh, we ask for those situations. We work hard to put ourselves in those situations uh, in many cases. And it's, it's good to take a pause with that and to say, how can I, you know, maybe I'm uh, challenged by a particular individual, but to remind myself, I kind of like mm. challenges. And to look, watch the litany of a conversation that's going on in my mind at that point, to actually be mindful of, of what, what I'm saying to myself in that time and understanding it and, and not reframing, but just recognizing like this is, there's some noise in this system and I should hear that noise and, and look, you know, possibly for the opportunity in this adversity without repressing anything that I'm particularly feeling. Cause I think that's a danger also that people run into, which is, let me just have happy thoughts. Let's, let's just go for happy thoughts. And I don't think that's the point. No, I, th I think you just nailed it, Peter. I mean, you hit that right on the head. You know, the idea is, um, instead of, you know, our normal tendency when we're, when we're not enjoying our internal reaction to something, when we don't find it pleasant, is we either want to repress it or many of us continue to, f to fuel it. You know, if somebody has engaged us in a way that insults our ego, we tend to have this circle of thought saying, you know, oh, well, I sh I'm righteous to be angry and I'm going to do this and they should have done that and I'm going to get them. And, you know, you can just kind of notice this thought, however subtle, this thought pattern of, you know, wanting to to assert ourselves in a way that kind of heals our, our ego wound, so to speak. Whereas the practice of mindfulness is to neither repress nor to fuel that it's, you hit it right on the head. It's just to kind of have this playful, almost like we're a mad scientist kind of investigating our own reaction and just saying, Oh, look, here's my habitual way of, you know, when this, when somebody from accounting walks into my office, look at how I immediately just want to shut them out because I hate that stuff. And just kind of watching it and that we're thereby no longer confined by it. And we start to see that this is something um, that's impermanent. It comes and goes. And the more that we have that insight, the more free we become. Excellent. Matt Tenney, thank you so much. The book is The Mindfulness Edge, How to Rewire Your Brain for Leadership and Personal Excellence without adding to your schedule. It's a great primer on mindfulness with a tremendous amount of research that helps us to understand 
both the importance of it, the research behind it, and some practical aspects of how to do it. So Matt, thank you for sharing your story and your knowledge with our listeners. Uh, And thank you for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.